Well, we're starting a new series today, and I want to start off with this story. How many of you, you know, you, you might be old enough to remember this, or you might have seen one of these phones. Have you ever seen a phone like this? Okay, this is a rotary phone, right? And, uh, and so for people who aren't familiar, there is numbers from one to nine around this circle, and then there's a zero here, but there's a stopper right here. How many of you, if you use this phone, hated when the zero showed up in a number? Yeah, because, you know, if, if you're clueless and you're like, what well, big deal, like I just press zero. Well, you know, if you have like a two, you just kind of go this way. But if you have a zero, you go all the way around and then it has to like go all the way back. And so if you have three or four zeros in your number, you start pinching yourself because you're like, this is crazy. Why is this taking so long? You pr- probably didn't do that back then. But if you had to go from a speed dial to a rotary phone, you might pinch yourself and, uh, and do that. Now... Today, phones are different, right? You can just take out your phone. You don't even have to dial. You can hold the button. You could be driving, plucking your eyebrows and say, Siri, call George Mobile, right? And you can do, it just happens. And I was thinking about the difference with that. It's like, here is rotary phone and here are cell phones um, that you can do almost anything with. Would we agree that phones today are better? Yeah, they're better. I mean, now... Barring that they take, maybe they, they take up half your time because you don't just call people on them and you watch stuff on them. But there's a significant difference from like a rotary phone to a cell phone and a smartphone today. An incredible difference. Today we're starting this series and we're calling it Better because over the next uh, few weeks, in fact, next few months, as we jump in and out of this book in the New Testament called The Letter Uh, to the Hebrews, or the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, we want to discover, rediscover, affirm, um, uh, explore how Jesus, uh, when Jesus comes into someone's life, when someone roots themselves in in the person and work of Jesus, how their life grows, how their life becomes better, and how often there's things that will, will play against um, our experience in following Christ, and sometimes an obstacle, a struggle, um, temptation, persecution. And so what we want to um, you know, get a picture of as we start this series is we want to be looking for, in this letter of Hebrews that we're going to read in a moment, what are these better things that God calls, that, that God calls us to? What is this better life that God offers us? What is this better foundation um, that, that this letter uh, really speaks into? And so I believe that as we jump into this, this new series and into this letter in the New Testament, we're going to find a message not just from the early church or for those early Christians in the first century, but a message for us today and for those who are seeking as well. You know, those of us maybe who are following Jesus for several years will get so much out of this letter. But even if you're here today and you're just starting to figure out who Jesus is, you're starting to figure out um, what faith is or Christianity is, I really believe this letter is going to have so much to say. So let's jump into it. And as we normally do when we walk through a book uh, as a series, we like to read it eventually in its entirety. So we're going to start with Hebrews chapter 1 today and just read 14 verses. So let's do that. If you've got your Bibles, you can pull them out and follow along. It's going to be on the screen as well. And let's jump into this, this book called Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. 
The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment they will be changed, but you remain the same and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Let's pray for a moment. Father, we, um, yeah, we invite you to open up our hearts and our minds Help us see the beauty, um, the explosive truth and power that are in these words. God, would you also connect it to parts of our lives that need uh, truth, that need your word to intersect. So we say welcome to that. For some who are here just exploring who you are, God, I pray that you would be able to show them, show all of us, um, the beauty of your son, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I felt like we, we kind of almost could have ended at the end of that chapter. It was just so rich and so beautiful and full with, um, with amazing truth. The context of this letter, it's different than other New Testament letters. It's not just a letter. It's not like a word of greeting. Uh, it's, there's not a list of recipients. There's, there's no official greetings. In fact, we don't even know who the author is, which is interesting. You know, many, some people might have wanted to peg Paul as the author, but there's no, there's no hint in here that Paul that, that, that this letter or the words or the writing or the genre of the writing looks like Paul. Some people might um, attribute this letter to one of the church leaders called Apollos. Some have thought that maybe Priscilla wrote this letter. Um, some have thought that Barnabas maybe wrote this letter, another New Testament leader. You know, th- people don't know. Scholars really don't know. In fact, one of the smartest scholars in the first few centuries named Origen admitted, I have no clue. He didn't say it in that way, but he basically said, I have no clue who wrote Hebrews. And they were okay with that because the richness and truth that we find in this letter just resonates with the other New Testament scriptures and with the scriptures as a whole. In fact, this is not really a letter. It's more like a sermon. As, as the writer launches into this message, they launch in with you know, an introduction that would capture people's attention around 
um, you know, who Jesus is and, and who would be reading this. Think about it for a second. First century followers of Jesus, very likely they have a Jewish background, but they've now come to know who Jesus is and come to discover who Jesus is as their Messiah, but also as Lord and Savior, and now begin following him and meeting up with a local church community that maybe meets in a middle to large size home. That's likely the context of the people who would have read this letter for the first time. Likely living near Rome in an area that had Jewish neighborhoods and probably in 60 or 70 AD. This letter or sermon is so particularly um, connected to these people that are reading it. It's so important for us to understand that. These early Christians, many of them struggling as they begin to follow Jesus struggling as they discover who Jesus is, get excited, but then over some time start to struggle, over some time start to doubt, over some time start to look back and and think about how they used to live or the source of life or dependence that they used to have or the community they used to be a part of. Maybe there was cultural or religious or family connections. There was one author, his name is Edward Fudge, and he he talks about how these early Christians that are reading this were likely part of the Jewish worship system initially. So they had this, the temple, the liturgy, uh, you know, the rhythm and rhyme of Judaism, the strong family connections, and now they traded all that in. They traded their synagogue in, they traded their family relationships in to join this little small group in a home of these people who are followers of Jesus. And, and at times probably wondering, did I do the right thing? And one of the questions that this author says, he says, he paraphrases it, that likely the author's asking this question, and I put it up here, how do I convince my readers that what they have in Christ is infinitely better than what they have given up? How can I convince my readers that what they have in Christ is infinitely better than what they have given up? And so this author starts with this amazing vision, this incredible vision of Jesus that the writer ties into every other message that God has ever given throughout history, throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament. And so the writer starts off in saying, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. I love that because automatically we get this idea, God spoke. God intersected culture, intersected humanity. And this affirms something about God that is so true, that God is a God who speaks, that our God is a God who is always speaking. Here we read that God spoke to these people's ancestors, that through the prophets, through people like Abraham and Moses, and then through the prophets in the Old Testament, God was getting his people's attention and talking to them. But more than that, I love this phrase that it says at many times and in various ways. So in different times, in different methods, in different ways, God was speaking. So we get this characteristic of God that our God is a God who loves to get our attention is a God who speaks to us, is a God who personally wants us to know him, and so he communicates. But then in verse 2, we move to something, and the author says, God didn't just speak in those times, but he's spoken again. God has spoken again. In verse 2, we get this blockbuster announcement, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So the God who spoke has spoken again, but now he's spoken 
through a different means. Not through prophets, not through people, not many, not many ways or many times, but in this time, in these last days, he now speaks through his son. And I love this. When we think about these last days, don't think about last days. Don't think about, you know, uh, God's um, renovation project, God's new creation, eternity coming into play. You need to think about that when the scripture talks about these last days, they started Jesus. As Jesus enters the world, these last days begin. And so in these days, the writer says, God is now speaking through his son. And I love this. Not just a prophet, not just leaders, not just a judge, like in the book of Judges, not just random occurrences or messengers, not just in variety of ways. Now, Jesus, now God is speaking through his son. This huge reminder for these people reading this letter, likely in a season of doubt or struggle, who used to depend on how God spoke in the past, who depended and were enriched and learned about God through how he spoke in the past, but now are learning how to depend on how he's speaking through his son and how he is bringing to, you know, to the top of his message, to the fruition of his message, what he's doing through Jesus, through his son. Now, some of us can say, you know, come on, I mean... Would they have really struggled with this? But think about how familiar, how comfortable they were with their community. Think of how rooted they were in their religion. Think of how rooted and connected they were with their family. Think of how many centuries that was passed on to, and now something brand new has taken place. And they've been captivated by it. They're following. They're they're drawing into Jesus, but they're also looking back as a comparison and saying, um, this is who I was connected with before. This is what... The law said, this is what I learned before. And so this clear message from God in such a personal format in his son is so beautiful and yet they need to be reminded of that because at times they they would forget. Just pause for a second. This is so different from any other religion or faith. This is so personal that God who speaks, God who reaches out, God who calls out, God who communicates is so different from other religions, other worldviews, other faiths. And then the climax of this communication campaign, that God comes down and says, I'm speaking again, but now I'm speaking through my son. So who's this son that God speaks through? You get this sweeping intro of Jesus. I love it. Jesus is called the heir of all things, the creator of the universe, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, someone who sustains everything in the world. So don't think of someone who holds like objects together, but think of a team leader that through the team leader's work and words and encouragement and leadership keeps that team together, keeps those people together. Through Jesus' words, through his powerful word, Jesus sustains all things. Through his words, through his care, through his presence, through his work, he sustains all things. It tells us that Jesus purified us from our sins. Jesus went to the cross. He purifies humanity from their sins so humanity can be in relationship with God. Humanity can be freed, can be forgiven. Now we read these things, that he's the heir of all things, he's the creator of the universe, and these themes come up later in the letter. And we'll look at them later on. But then he comes to this point. The author comes to this point and says that Jesus is superior to the angels, that he's better than the angels. And, and it seems like 
Judaism had a theology around angels that was significant. And, and the writer is reminding these Christians of who Jesus is, that Jesus is not like the angels. Jesus is not just another created being. But there's something significant about Jesus that makes him superior to the angelic host that we read about in scriptures. And so this author reaches back into the Old Testament, reaches back into the scriptures that these people would have known, and he starts unearthing these scriptures, and he starts teaching them about who Jesus is and how much better he is than any of the other messages or sources or messengers or forces that God has used, that Jesus is better. In fact, this author quotes the Old Testament 35 times in this sermon. And he summarizes 19 sections of the Old Testament in this section, or in this, in this sermon. And he uses four psalms. Over and over again, he comes back to these four psalms that highlight who the Jewish Messiah would be, and how he would come, and what he would be like, and what he would accomplish. And so we read some of these psalms. In chapter 1, if you, if you catch this, and I'll put some of them on the screen here, It tells us something about the Messiah. So this author will reach back and pull out things from the Old Testament to help these readers understand who Jesus is, what he's about. I love the first part. He he says, For God never said to any angel what he said to Jesus. Then he quotes Psalm 2, verse 7. You are my son. Today I have become your father. He pulls this from the Old Testament to help these people understand that Jesus isn't just an ordinary person. That Jesus isn't just another messenger. That Jesus is God's son. The angels, this writer says in verse 14, are servants. Ministering servants and spirits that that serve the Lord. But Jesus is God's son. But then there's something else. In verse 6, he goes back and he reaches something out of Deuteronomy chapter 32. He says, And when he brought his supreme son into the world, God said, Let all of God's angels worship him. So now Jesus is one to be worshipped, is one to be adored, is one to be followed. So first, it's God's, he's God's son. There's this relationship with God the Father and Jesus. Then he's to be worshipped. He has this position that is similar to God. He's to be worshipped. And then I love this. He pulls out from, from Psalms uh, 45. And in the next one, But to the Son he says, and I love this, Your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. Your You rule with a scepter of justice. But look at that part. Whenever this writer quotes the Old Testament, he doesn't quote the Hebrew version. He quotes the Greek version called the Septuagint. It was very common in the first century for Jews to be reading the Greek version of the Old Testament. And uh, and this is what he read. So that word God would have been the word theos in Greek. And it would have had this view of who God is. And look, I love how what he does. He connects Jesus and he says, but to the Son he says, your throne, O God, endures forever. He equates Jesus with God. He gives Jesus this title of divinity, this title of literally being God himself. And then as we continue next, he says, um, you rule with a scepter of justice. I think this was my favorite descriptions of Jesus here. The world is longing for justice. The world is longing to be rescued from evil in certain parts of the world. The world is longing to be treated, for people to be treated fairly. And here we get this description of Jesus who is one who will rule with justice. Your justice, you love justice and hate evil. Therefore, your God has anointed you, pouring out the oil of joy on you more than anyone else. 
Jesus is one who is God, who is the Son of God, who is worshipped, and who rules with justice. This is so important for these first early believers to read this. Because they are fading in their faith. They're fading in, in, in this decision they've made to follow Jesus. And they're looking back. Should we go backwards? Should we go back to this life? Should we go back to this religious system? Should we go back to this sacrificial system? Should we go back to the synagogue? Should we go back to the temple? And this author is giving them this view of Jesus to help them understand in their doubts, in their struggle, in their marginalization, they can be strong and secure in Christ so important for them so think about it what do we get from this today when just a couple of things if this vision of jesus means something and we're going to unpack this over the series i think there's three things that are really important for you and me today and the first one's this and we get this from this introduction the first one of this vision of jesus is this when we see jesus we see god that might seem simple to you right But it's so true because so many people have a perception of God that is not really God. So many people have a misunderstanding, a confused perception of God that's not God. And I love what what the author writes here. When he describes Jesus, he uses this word. He says, he is the exact representation of God. The exact representation of God. That word is the word character in that language. And the word character in Greek was also used for like engraving. You know when you engrave something? And so this sense of this perfect picture is then placed on, you know, created in metal form, and then it's able to be engraved on something like a stamp. So it's this precise impression. It's like when they would make coins. They would create the first exact representation, and then they would make these coins. And each coin would look identical. And the author is saying Jesus exactly, precisely represents God. He is that exact representation. And so when you think about this, when the author says, in those days, God spoke through prophets and many ways in various forms, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like, for so long, people were getting sketches. Have you ever sketched anything? My kids have sketched sketches of me. They don't always look like me. Last night, some people were in my garage, and someone saw a picture that my son made of me. I love the picture. It's plasticized. It's awesome. But he was four, and he was a great artist, but it doesn't fully look like me, right? And so have you ever had sketches? Like, sketches don't always look exactly like you. Even when you go downtown and find an artist, and they sketch something, or you find a really good artist, it's, it's good, but it's never exact, And so over centuries, God is is sending these advanced sketches of himself, these these advanced drawing communications of himself, these sketches that people will get and read, and, and they're getting to know who God is, and they're getting a sense of who God is, and that's how God spoke in previous times. As he spoke through the prophets, as he spoke through others, they were these advanced sketches. But then in Jesus, he sent the exact portrait. In Jesus, he sent the exact representation of who he is. In those times, he spoke different ways through different people. But now he will speak through his son. And I think this is important because when we ask the question, who is God, or our friends ask us, who is God, we need to point them to Jesus because Jesus is the exact representation of God. 
Sometimes we misunderstand who God is because we pull out of a hat. We pull, you know, one or two verses out of the Old Testament or we pull out an experience or we pull out uh, what we learned, you know, in Sunday school once 40 years ago or we pull out what someone said or we pull out because we saw this movie and it made us think of God and so we woke up the next morning and thinking this must be what God is like. There's a part of... But the Scripture is saying you can't discover who God is unless you really discover who Jesus is. Jesus tells us who God is. So when you see Jesus, you see God. When you know Jesus, you know God. When you discover Jesus, you discover God. When you follow his ways and understand his ways, you start to discover God's true heart. Have you ever had a bad picture of God and it's shaped the way you've lived or made decisions? Have you ever met people that have had a bad, a bad perception of God and they've needed to have the right picture? Have you looked at Jesus yet? Have you pointed them to see Jesus? I think that's so important. Here's this next thought when you just some practical ideas of this. Jesus helps us interpret the Old Testament. And I think this is so vital because it's it's kinda like it's kinda like this. I pulled, you know, I've had this, an iPhone for a while, and this is the case. I don't know why people keep cases. It was on my bookshelf and it's like two and a half years old. But so it's there and it's a pretty cool case. Apple does a great job of cases, and so do other companies now. And it's slick, and it's white, and it's clean, and you can see the product, and it says iPhone 5 there, and the Apple symbol's there. And I could learn a lot about this product. I know it's an iPhone 5. It was white. Um, tells me the gigabytes. There was one of them inside when I bought it. Designed by Apple in California, assembled in China. Other items is marked therein. Model A1428. Did you want to know that? Model A1428. I can tell you the serial number, but I think that would bore you. And so, and then there's a couple of other legal things that I can read here, and it definitely lets me know that it came from California, and that's where Apple's headquarters are. It's a pretty cool case, though. But, I mean, it'd be interesting that it, this is kind of what happens in how we, we, in, we, we look at faith sometimes. And when we look at the whole story of God, when we only take a part of it, we only take those advanced sketches. It's kind of like me looking at this case and saying, I love this case. This case tells me so much about what I need to use this phone for, but I never open the case. And so these advanced sketches, the, the story of God, the, the Old Testament is, is partly like this case. It tells us so much. And it looks really nice. But often we can get enamored with the box and we never open what's inside. And when, when we say this, Jesus helps us interpret the Old Testament. Is like, we don't want to just get caught up with the wrapping. We don't want to just get caught up with the box. We want to actually open the box and say, what has God given us? Who has God given us? What is God trying to tell us? And until we truly look at Jesus, we will not see the whole picture. We will not see the whole story. So when you read the scriptures, and when we read the scriptures, we want to look at it through the eyes of Jesus. The last thing I'd say is, as we get in this, this introduction, this author was so set on making sure people would be anchored in something and anchored in Christ. You know, there's, you're going to have vital moments in your life of doubt, of struggle, persecution, feeling alone, disconnected, being hurt, where you're going to have to be resilient. And I can tell you that, you know, a cool church or great music or, you know, a modestly looking preacher, <laughs> stroking, would, um, is going to help you. None of that stuff's going to help you. 
That's not going to be your foundation. This author is trying to get these people to a real anchor, to what will truly help them endure. And that will mean depending on a growing relationship with Jesus and embracing his words for your life. And no one can fully do that for you. We as a church can nurture one another towards that. We can teach one another. But we need to press deeper into Jesus as the Son of God and Jesus' words to us as God's word to us. If we want to endure. Just today I was hearing the story. We're going to pray for them during communion as we close later. But this group of Christians who are in an area of Syria who are, who are onslaughted by a group of ISIS fighters. I don't think like a cool you know, church or music or some kind of like positive message is really going to help them in that moment. What's going to help them endure? What's going to help them walk through that difficult, really, really ultra difficult, almost impossible crisis, possibly leading to death? How could they endure that? How can they be resilient through that? How can they even fathom what that is unless they're not anchored in Jesus? And that goes the same for the different things that we go through, maybe not at that level, but we need to be anchored in Christ. So why, as we close, why better? I'm going to ask the team to come up as we, we slowly move into communion here. But think about this. As, as we walk through Hebrews, we're going to see the word better come up a few times. And today we saw it in the word superior. Jesus is superior to the angels. But I want to end. I read this fictional story that someone created of a typical person in the, in the 60s or 70s AD that would have received this letter So they wrote about, they created this character named Antonius. It's about 68 AD. Antonius lived in Rome. He had a Jewish background. He attended the synagogue. Rome was a city of about about a million people at the time. Maybe there were 50 or 60,000 Jews that lived in different neighborhoods or areas or regions. Antonius discovers Jesus. He begins to follow Jesus. Somebody tells him about Jesus and he is, he is caught up with the message of Jesus. He's caught up with the person of Jesus and he begins to follow the ways of Jesus. And he's excited and he's, he's enamored with Christ and something has happened in his heart and he is totally amazed at who Jesus is and he starts to gather with a group of other Christ followers in his area. They meet in a home every week or so. They share meals together. They, they, they read um, you know, they'll read different letters maybe that they've received or reflect on Old Testament passages that lead them to Christ in a deeper way. They'll sing. But in time, Antonius gets ridiculed. He gets marginalized by his family that still have, are still in Judaism but have seen where he's been moving towards and aren't really accepting of it. Marginalized by both pagans and former members of his family and of his religious group. And eventually, abuse for the church in this decade starts to grow. In fact, the emperor in the mid-60s AD starts to approve the ridicule and harassment of those who were the people of the way, those who followed Jesus. In fact, some started to lose their jobs because of their faith in Christ. So it wasn't, it wasn't impossible. In fact, it was very common that if you were Christian, you were also poor. Because you were marginalized for your faith. So Antonius likely would have had his either job at jeopardy or maybe he lost his job. And his heart is cooling and he's finding it difficult to keep pressing forward in this new faith that he's found. And he skips a few gatherings in the home 
He skips a few of these meetings with these fellow Christians. And his heart starts to get colder. And maybe out of doubt or bitterness from persecution setting in, it starts, he starts to get, almost give up. But this week comes around, and there's a rumor has it that the church leader has an important announcement to make with these group of Christ followers. And the leader received this letter from back east, and, and they were going to share it at tonight's meeting. So even though Antonius is, is discouraged, something in him says, I, I want to hear. I want to know what this is all about. And so he ends up going to the group that night and he meets these other believers again and there's food and there's drinks and they're talking and sharing. And the leader of that small church in a home finally makes it. He's running and he's out of breath and he's holding this scroll in his hand. And he had convinced the other leaders in the region that if he would just have the permission to read this, read this letter to these group of people. And he opens up the scroll And he reads these words. In the past, God spoke through our ancestors, through the prophets, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. And he goes on to read the letter of Hebrews to this group. And Antonius is there, and he starts to rediscover the beauty and vision of Jesus. N.T. Wright says these words, it's on the screen, once you see who the Son really is and the role he was always intended to play in God's plan, you won't want to go back to anything or anyone else. So today as we, we close this, as we start this series, I'm not sure where, what you're feeling, I'm not sure if you feel excited, encouraged, or if you feel discouraged, or if you need affirmation in your faith, but our goal as we move through this is that we would see Jesus in greater light. 